You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor here at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Well, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we are fortunate enough to be joined by two critical senators who are working on this issue, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. They had legislation that focused on youth mental health that passed in 2016. Well, that legislation is set to expire, and we'll talk to them about their efforts to reauthorize that bill. But first, we must address what the country is still reeling from, another mass shooting, this time again at a school, and this time in Uvalde, Texas. We know that mental health is one component of this story, but it is not necessarily the entire story. So we're going to talk to both senators about that today as well. Senators Murphy, Senator Cassidy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having us. Before we start, I want to tell our audience that you can submit questions. Uh, Head to Twitter and use the hashtag at PostLive if you have a question for either senator. So, Senator Murphy, I want to talk to you. We played a little bit of your floor speech on the Senate floor yesterday that happened, you know, once it was realized what actually happened in Uvalde yesterday. Uh, One of the things that stood out to me is you said, the community of Sandy Hook, which you represent in Connecticut, has never recovered, will never be the same. And you say the community in Texas will never be the same again. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what your initial thoughts were and what you're feeling now and what you think is most important here? Well, thanks for having both Bill and I on today and look forward to discussion about the important issue of mental health. Listen, I, of course, am grieving for the families in Texas, but my first thoughts often are of the families in Sandy Hook because they you know, are forced to relive the nightmare of their experience when their kids were killed every time that there's another mass shooting, in particular, there's another school shooting. And, you know, well, we, I think very rightly focus on the number of people who are killed in these incidents, you have to remember that every single kid in that school just went through something absolutely horrific and there's going to be trauma that comes with that experience that'll be with them for a very long time. And every single person that's killed has people that they um, that love them that are going to go through trauma. On average, when there's a homicide, um, about 20 people experience diagnosable trauma that needs some kind of intervention or treatment. So, you know, in a nation that, um, you know, has a, a spiraling rate of violence, we also have a spiraling rate of need for intervention. You know, we can have a conversation about you know, what mental health uh, reform would mean for the pace of shootings, but we just have to admit that with the number of murders that are happening and the pace of the mass shootings, we have a lot of folks who are going through really awful traumas that need uh, a lot of help. And, you know, maybe our bill um, can make it a little bit easier for those families that need help in the aftermath of these shootings to get it. Yesterday, you told reporters off the Senate floor, Senator Murphy, I'm going to stick with you for just one more question. And you said that mental health is something that happens around the country or around the world. The United States is not an outlier. um, But what the United States is an outlier is on the gun issue, on access to guns. So is the mental health ish component of this, is this is this 
as important as a gun issue or less important? Can you just expand on what you said yesterday? Well, I mean, my, my point is just to you know make sure people understand that there's not a lot of evidence that the United States has more mental illness than other countries. We have all the shootings, but um, of course we should fix our mental health system because it's it's broken. And of course there's a story of mental illness connected to not all, but many of these shootings. Um, I, I just, um, you know, I've said this to Bill, um, you know, I just think we should try to find a path forward. I, I get it that the things I support, not all Republicans support. I, I know that the things Republicans support, I may not support. But, you know, my hope is that especially in the aftermath of this tragedy, we can, you know, try to find some common denominator that um, mainly involved that, that might involve some changes to gun laws that might involve some increased supports for mental health that draws from sort of both Republicans and Democrats approaches to these issues that ultimately can get 60 votes in the Senate. I'm just going to be very willing to be part of a conversation about compromise in the coming days and weeks, because I think we you know, do need to show parents in this country that, you know, we're not just ignoring this, that we are going to try to bridge our differences. And, and that's my commitment. Senator Cassidy, similar question to you is what happened in Texas, what happened in Buffalo, and what happens a lot in this country? Is it a mental health issue? Is it a gun issue? Or is it both? A couple things. First, let me just also, how can we not feel emotional about what happened in Buffalo and in Texas? And so let me just kind of just express that. Uh, to think of it happening to one of your family members, your child, your grandchild, moves us all to tears. Chris has been a leader on this, and Chris, I think, is very appropriately saying, I think I'm hearing Chris say this, sometimes there is a mental health component, but that does not matter. We still have to do our best to stop it. Sometimes there is no mental health issue. We still have to do our best to stop it. And sometimes, you know, it's some nuance that we can't discuss, you know, just can't imagine. We still got to do our best to stop it. Now, one of the ways if mental health is involved is to provide those mental health services that early detection, all the services, uh, uh, something which Congress has previously passed under a Republican Congress to, to enable the fixed NICS system, if you will, where if in this case somebody is arrested for spousal abuse, then he would not be able to buy a weapon legally. But after the Virginia Tech uh, shooting in 2007, in which there was federal funding for state databases so that if somebody, because of mental illness, was adjudicated uh, to not be able to have a weapon, that the state would be able to keep track of that. All that to say, it almost doesn't matter. We have to do what is required um, that we can find 60 votes on to keep this from happening again. And I applaud Chris both for his passion and for his pragmatism. What is that? What do you think the path is for that Senator Cassidy 60 vote threshold? Is it perhaps red flag laws? There are some discussions now about that. Um, there's been long discussions about expanded background checks. Um, are those possibilities? Uh, it's certainly something to discuss, but obviously Buffalo and New York, they have red flag laws and they didn't stop Buffalo. And this gentleman passed a background, the, the fellow Mr. Ramos in Texas, uh, passed a background check, and that didn't stop this tragedy. So it's easy to kind of draw comfort from things, but you have to find, uh, um, you know, kind of solutions as well. And I think that's what Chris is suggesting we discuss fully. I agree with him totally. 
And Senator Murphy, should uh, assault weapon ban be on the table? And same question to you, to Sen Senator Cassidy. Well, I mean, listen, this is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much on the record as being, you know, for a, a restriction on assault weapons in this, uh, in this country. Um, no secret that, you know, I would support um, putting them back on the list of weapons that should be reserved for law enforcement and the military. I also understand that right now that proposal is not going to get 60 votes in the United States uh, Senate. Voters can make a decision in November uh, about whether they want to send members back to the Senate um, based upon their position on the issue of assault weapons. But right now, as I said, my my goal is to try to find something that can pass. And what is true is that um, a ban on assault weapons right now in this Senate can't pass. So we've got to find something else, you know, whether it's red flag laws, whether it's a you know, smaller expansion of the background check system. Um, uh, we've got to find a, a path to 60 to 60 votes. And, and I think the, yeah. yeah, and I think the reason it wouldn't get 60 votes, uh, and by the way, none of this minimizes the pain that people feel about these events. And it's important to see through the pain to that, you know, the facts, if you will. The fellow in Buffalo took a weapon which he legally purchased despite a red flag law and he mo illegally modified it because New York has a ban on assault weapons. He illegally modified it to have the function of an assault weapon or a semi-automatic, I should say. As regards the ban on assault weapons, uh, a previous RAND Corporation report and a, a uh, I forget, I think a government accounting office report have both found that the, uh, the assault weapon ban passed under the Clinton years had no effect on mass shootings. Now, by the way, this can be rediscussed. I'm just saying that which is kind of the current understanding. Um, because, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the fact that any of these events occur is terrible, and we need to figure out within that which does work how to prevent them in the future. I was trying not to get in an argument with you, Bill, over assault weapons, you know, on a on a on a call about mental health. But um, I, I I think again, I'll just I think my my sort of read of the data is different um, as to what happened during the Clinton years. But again, the the reality is that's not where the votes are right now. Maybe the votes are there in future Congresses, but that's not where the votes are right now. So we've got to find something else to show folks that we're making progress. And my compliment to my colleague is that he will have that conversation. And I appreciate that. And we we need to have that conversation. And those conversations are beginning, it seems like. Even in the past week, Senator Murphy, when I spoke with you last week um, in the halls of Congress after Buffalo, uh, you said you didn't think any of these negotiations would start again with Senator Cornyn. Um, on on a, a background check type bill, um, perhaps with Senator Graham, there didn't seem to be any sort of appetite. Do you think that after this, more children being massacred, do you think that those discussions will actually begin? I mean, we don't know if they're going to go anywhere, but will they happen? I, I, I do, um, and I and I meant what I said after Buffalo. It didn't feel to me like the ground had significantly changed, which I can't understand, but was my perception of the reality after Buffalo. Um, you know, we're all human beings, um, you know, and even if you had previously not wanted to sort of enter into conversations about mass shooting policy after you watch 19 little kids um, die and sit, uh, lie on the floor of their classroom waiting body identification, you can't help but 
want to engage. So um, over the course of today, um, I've talked to a number of Republicans who are interested in sitting down and talking um, about a, a common sense set of reforms that have some Republican ideas, have some Democratic ideas um, that can do something to change the pace of, of slaughter. Right? We have a break week next week where Congress is back in our states. And I think you know, we'll use that week to continue those conversations. And maybe when we get back, there's something uh, that we can vote on. Senator Cassidy, this legislation that you have with Senator Murphy that addresses, that tries to address youth mental health, and if I'm explaining it correctly, it enables primary pediatrician doctors to be able to help their patients access mental health therapists and resources. And will that help in this situation as, you know, the kids in Uvalde have been traumatized, the school, the community, um, there's lots of children who are going to school today who are scared. There's lots of parents who are sending their children to school today scared. Uh, the gun issue is, of course, one issue. But this legislation specifically, will it do anything to address the type of concerns that we're talking about this morning, the day after another mass shooting? Senator Cassidy. Does, inc does increase uh, does increase resources for school-based clinics as one example for school-based clinics to be able to provide counseling services, mental health services for the students whom they serve. One example. Uh, you mentioned the increased training to get to try and get more providers aware of this issue, specifically pediatricians, which you referred to earlier. There's also the concept of let's just take the child who's particularly troubled. One thing I've been very interested in is something called the coordinated care program. Uh, typically, a child develops serious mental illness sometime between 15 and 25. And there's a very effective study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health out of Maine, which um, showed that if you wrap services around that child, her first episode of serious mental illness can be her last episode of serious mental illness. Now, Chris and I got that in the bill in 2016, but it's not been as disseminated as widely as it should have been. Different reasons for that? but we're trying to address those reasons. So indeed, it is a program much more widely used than it has been since we first passed this in 2016. And that would have definitely have an effect. I could go on, but I'll defer to Chris for more examples. Well, I, well, I mean, Senator, I think, no, Bill's right. I mean, this is, um, there's a lot more resources in this bill. So first, you know, in the aftermath of these shootings, you just need more resources. Um, Normally what happens in these shootings is that there's an exceptional amount of resources that are sent to the school right in the aftermath. But then after you know, a couple of months, a couple of years, um, you have to go back to your old resources, either your own pocket or your insurance company to pay for the trauma care you need for your, your, your child who just witnessed his kids being shot. Um, one of the things that maybe we'll talk about in this bill is we um, provide um, a lot more resources for states and the federal government to push insurance companies to pay for more mental health care. Um, because you sort of think about a family that's been victimized once, a loved one being killed, they're trying to get mental health support to deal with their trauma, and then they have to argue with their insurance company for months to get reimbursement. This bill that we've introduced um, provides more tools to enforce the insurance company's obligation to pay for mental health care, and that'll help in these situations. Well, Senator Cassidy, one of the things um, that I've learned, not only through looking into this issue, but also talking with a lot of friends who are dealing with this with their children and mental health, um, is access. 
And the CDC says that access is absolutely a problem to mental health resources for children and young people because of lack of providers in an area, lack of healthcare workers, uh, long waiting lists to receive care, um, lack of insurance coverage, and it's just very difficult for parents to put in those time and resources to actually find care. Um, and so I'm going to turn to a question from a member of the audience who, who addresses this, from Sandra in Nevada, where she says, how do we create a resilient workforce pipeline to produce more mental health providers to address our severe shortage of all types of providers? Senator Cassidy. Well, there's a couple things to that. One, we, uh, this bill gives more resources for that pipeline to develop. That's number one. Secondly, it expands training for people who might not traditionally be the provider of record, for example, the pediatrician, so that she would have um, a greater sensitivity to issues, greater training on those issues. We try and use resources uh, more effectively to, to allow those resources to coordinate. In a different piece of legislation, uh, there is telemental health expansion. So because sometimes it's just a misallocation of resources. There's far, there, there's um, many more adolescent psychiatrists in Shreveport, Louisiana, than there would be in a rural community 150 miles from Shreveport. And if you look at a place like San Francisco, it's gonna have a tremendous number of providers. But if you go to uh, Eureka County uh, in California, you may have far fewer. And I'm sure the, the caller could make some comparison between Las Vegas and a rural area in Nevada. So telemental health is going to be another resource that, that we can look at it holistically that will actually have an impact upon this maldistribution and this shortage, if you will. Yeah, Senator Murphy, one quick question and quick response if you can, even though this is such a hard question to answer quickly. Um, this legislation was passed in 2016 before the pandemic. The pandemic has been brutal for young people and their mental health. Um, are there any changes to address what they have gone through in the pandemic in your bill? Well, you know, as a, as a parent of two kids, you know, who are out of school for a year and a half, I've seen firsthand what these kids are, are dealing with. It's hard enough to be a kid or a teenager in America today, never mind having been in isolation for a year and a half. Um, I, I don't know that we have specific resources in this bill tailored to the pandemic, but we think that the urgency around passing this bill um, is informed by the pandemic, right? We, we double the amount of money that goes into these programs in this bill. We need that right now. Pediatricians who are overwhelmed with kids who have come out of the pandemic with more trauma than before need all the additional resources we're giving them, training resources, telehealth resources. So um, it, it's not that there's sort of specific pandemic tailored policy in this bill. It just seems to me that the pandemic is a reason why we need to pass this mental health reform bill, this investment in mental health right now. Senators Murphy, Senator Cassidy, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. Thanks, thank Liam. you, mm -hmm. And we will be right back. Our program is not over. We're going to talk to our next guest, Anna King from the National PTA and Miana Bryant from the Mental Health Element. Please join us. We'll be back shortly. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. 
The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch, and I'm here in conversation today with Becky Kringle, president of the National Education Association. The uh, NEA is a union of more than 3 million educators, activists, and allies who believe in opportunity for all students and in the power of public education to transform lives and create a more just and inclusive society. Welcome, Becky. Thank you, Kathleen. It's good to be with you. Today, we're here talking about the current mental health crisis affecting both students and educators. Um, just last month, the 16-year-old son of a friend of mine committed suicide. This is impacting so many families. Becky, what do you think is behind this? Is this an effect of COVID-19 or, or is it something more? Oh, Kathleen, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend's uh, child and it's not alone. We have so many other parents and families who are suffering because of the loss of a child to suicide. This is not new. Over the last 10 years, we've seen almost a 15% increase in the number of our, our students who are ex experiencing sadness and hopelessness. And of course, the pandemic just made that worse. The isolation from their friends, uh, the inability to be in person with those caring, committed adults every day. And we have almost 140 thousand students who lost their parents or caregivers uh, to COVID this year. So we know that the crisis is far worse now, and we must, must collectively come together to do something about it. Becky, I know there is no single solution, but talk to me about what steps can be taken or are already being pursued to help address this ongoing mental health crisis in our schools. Kathleen, I appreciate you saying that there's no single solution. This is a complex problem, and it's going to take complex uh, and comprehensive solutions. And all of us, all of us need to understand that it is our shared responsibility to ensure that our students have what they need and what they deserve. So we absolutely have to come together to provide those mental health services, to ensure we have more mental health professionals, not only in our schools, but that we're partnering with those mental health professionals and organizations within our communities so that we collectively are addressing not only their academic and social emotional needs, but housing, the housing crisis and food crisis uh, in this country, all of that is impacting our students' mental health. It is so complex. Uh, Becky, what is the National Education Association and, and what are educators as a whole doing to help our nation's youth through this crisis? Kathleen, we were actually working at the local level with our educators who are negotiating contracts, and they are including in those negotiations, uh, advocating for their students. So in Los Angeles, for example, they negotiated a contract that included smaller class sizes because they understand they need that one-to-one -one attention for each and every student. In Minneapolis recently, they negotiated to have more counselors and social workers and psychologists so that the students had, right within, those, within their schools, those mental health 
professionals. At the national level, we are providing training for educators in social emotional learning and in restorative practices. And we are partnering with the administration, with the U.S. Department of Education, to actually implement the mental health initiative that the president announced that he was focused on. And lastly, we are working on legislation to provide the additional funding and resources and professionals to address those mental health needs of our students. Becky, if some of our viewers would like to get some more information uh, about what the NEA is doing about this issue, about how they can get involved, where should they go? Uh, Kathleen, first of all, I would like for them to uh, partner with, with the teachers and other educators in their schools, parents and teachers together. Uh, that's a dynamic duo. In addition, go to nea.org slash mental health, where we have just a wealth of resources, how they can become active, how they can connect with each other, how they can continue to learn so that we ensure that all of our students, everyone, is safe and healthy and thriving. Such a critical issue that really does uh, require this all hands uh, on approach that you described. Uh, Becky Pringle, president of the National Education Association. Thanks for joining us. And uh, now back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you who are just joining, I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live and co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. We are continuing our discussion on mental health and support for young people in mental health. And we are going to be speaking with Miana Bryant, who started Mental Elephant, and also Anna King, who is president of the National PTA. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Thank for, you having for having me. Yeah. And I want to start with you because of what is what happened in Uvalde, Texas yesterday. You are the president of the National PTA Association. Um, what is your initial response that once again this is happening in our country schools? To say I'm speechless would just be an understatement. We our, our kids, our children right now are faced with so many things that they shouldn't be faced with. In America, we teach our children that they have inherited life and, and, and pursuit of happiness. And far too long, our children have been taken from us with senseless violence, and that's not acceptable. Instead of um, going to school confident of learning in a safe building, in a peaceful classroom, we have to start focusing on safety measures and drills that our children are going through. I had a discussion with one of my grandsons last night and he's in the fourth grade. He told me, Nana, I don't wanna to go to school tomorrow, I'm scared. And I didn't have words. I didn't know how to comfort him. Thinking about what our parents faced sitting outside waiting for their their children to know anything just imagine what these precious babies were faced with in the classroom where they couldn't escape it's just it's unimaginable and these these incidents shouldn't happen like this this shouldn't happen in this country our elected officials I, I have a question because I was listening to the conversation earlier. Yeah. 
and it's a different different discussion from from different parties it seems but this is not a party issue this is about our children and my question is do we not value the lives of our nation's children our educators and our families enough to pass simple measures that could save their lives it's just a simple question what do you think the answer is Anna I don't have an answer to that. I do know that we are asking from PTA that we're asking for sensible gun reform. We're asking for safety measures of schools. We're act, we're asking for Congress to come up with something that will help our students and our educators in our schools to be safe. Mm -hmm. There's so much that they're faced with right now. Yeah. And Miana, you did you have not been directly impacted by a school shooting. So I want to make that very clear. This is not why you went into the mental health space. Um, but I do want to ask you, you are you're closest to elementary school, you're closest to school than any of us um, talking right now. And so, you know, what could you see? with your experience in mental health and your work now studying to be a social worker, what does this do to a child, to a classroom, to a school and a community? Um, I would definitely like to say, first of all, Ms. King, I 100% understand and empathize with your emotions. Um, I would definitely say that it does a lot to kids. It does a lot to parents. It does a lot to communities. Um, definitely, number one, having to wake up and send your child to school and they don't come home, or in this particular situation when it comes to the school in Texas, a lot of those parents were actually at the school one to two hours prior to the shooting for an award ceremony because it was their last week. So number one, you have parents that any parent in any situation having to bury a child is traumatic painful and difficult. So we have parents that are struggling. You have children that are, even the children that were not necessarily in that classroom, children that were in classrooms over, children that were in the building that are now going to struggle, now going to be traumatized. Multiple children who may not want to go back to school, who may not want to continue to be in school, who may not trust school officials anymore. You have kids who are vicariously traumatized, fourth graders, third graders, from around the country that are watching this on the news and now asking their parents, can that happen to me? And you now have parents who are being asked, if that happens, what am I supposed to do? And though I am not a parent, I definitely understand the sentiment of not necessarily knowing what to tell your child. Because even as an adult in a supermarket trying to shop in Buffalo, New York, when somebody walks in with a powerful firearm, there is genuinely nothing to do. Um, so it is definitely scary. It is definitely traumatic on every level from the children that were there up to the community, up to the parents, up to friends and family. It is traumatic for everyone on every level and definitely something that has to be talked about and worked through by the community, by lawmakers, and by this country. Anna, I want to ask you, in this moment of crisis in this community in Texas, what sort of resources does the school specifically need? Well, our, our, we're suggesting that 
our schools and our staff right now, what they need is time to grieve. Um, rushing in and helping our, we have a need of wanting to help. And that's not what they need right now. They need for us to comfort them in any way that we can. But I wanna come back by saying that our schools need to start by educating their staff and families on what mental health is. This is a huge concern that we have and what the supports are available, which includes anything from counseling, providing our families the tools and the resources that they need to have mental health conversations at home. That's what our families need. They need resources where they're able to talk to their children about being safe in a school, um, about grief. We have these resources at pta.org um, slash healthy minds. We have a lot of resources and we've done a lot of work on grief and what mental health is. These are the things that our families and this community right now are going to need. Miana, I want to ask you about your organization, um, uh, Mental Elephant. What, why did you start it? I personally began the Mental Elephant after my own personal diagnosis, which major depressive disorder, um, and especially being an African-American woman, it was something that I had never necessarily been talked to about or have received information on. So after my diagnosis, I decided to overshare in a sense um, with a lot of my friends and discuss what was going on with me, which then had a lot of people kind of responding by saying that they were going through a lot of the same things and had no idea that they were symptoms of depression, what symptoms of mental health issues even are. Um, and from that, I definitely noticed that there was just a lack of information, a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowing in a lot of different communities from high schoolers and middle schoolers all the way up to young adults and people in their early to late 20s definitely needing help and needing guidance when it comes to mental health. So I felt that possibly starting an organization and just getting that information out there to whoever is able to receive it would definitely be helpful, even if I only help one person. Mm -hmm. um, Anna, did you, were you about to say something? I'm I'm just listening because I think that's amazing that they're just focused. I love seeing the video when it was like a check-in. That's important for um, our children, not just the, our children to check in, but our teachers, our staff, our family, our parents. Um, checking on, on your loved ones is extremely important. What hit me the most is what, what Becky said earlier about that this is a complex issue. Right, there's not one thing that can solve mental health. There are so many things that our children are facing right now and our teachers and our families across the country. And what we have done at PTA is, is that we're trying to focus on, on our, our, our legislation and, and urging our members of Congress right now to increase access to mental health in schools, right? We know a lot of our children and our families don't have, have insurance. So how can they get treatment for that? The Elementary and Secondary School Counseling Act. Our schools need counselors. Our, our, our schools need social workers. But there has to be a continuation with funding to make sure that, that this continues. We have to have Safe Schools Improvement Act. We have Rise from Trauma Act. We have Family Support Service for Addiction Act. There are so many things that our Congress can do right now. We're asking for co-sponsors of the following bills that I just talked about. Resources, 
you can put monetary there. You can put an amount of money there, but we need resources. And when she was saying that it's a check-in from a single, as a black woman, she just said that she had to create something to speak for her and to speak for, for children and families that look like her. Why does she have to create that when we should already have something that is available for all of our families? Mm -hmm. I have two questions, one for each of you, but I'm gonna go to Anna first. Um, a question from Twitter. Uh, a woman, Teresa Sullivan says, I am concerned about schools taking on mental health clinic status. We can't do it. We want to, we just can't. Wraparound is great, but the healthcare industry is killing us. There are no beds and no staff available. And she says she's in Massachusetts. Anna, can you address the concerns that schools are already overtaxed? Can they take on this as well? Yes. Anna. Mm -hmm. Yes, they can. We're not asking to have mental have beds inside of a school. We're talking about having counselors that will be able to talk to our students and to figure out where they are emotionally and mentally. We're talking about having social workers that can provide resources. This is not a medical clinic and what would be bad about having a clinic inside of a school that will be able to help our students get the resources that they need to be successful. We know that many of our communities, especially black and brown communities, don't have access to having mental health care or or physical health care or anything like that. So having a, a community-based clinic inside of a school, we could see that as a good thing. It's a resource for our students and not overloading the nurses. Some of our schools don't even have nurses inside of a school. So anything that we can do to provide resources for our students, our families, and our educators, I think that would be a great thing inside of our schools. Not, not bad. Uh, Miana, I have a question from another member of the audience. Um, it gets at what you were saying earlier. Uh, from Eric in California, he asks, what ways can we bring mental wellness education to underserved teen populations? How do we educate parents and how to speak to their children who may or may not show signs of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation? Miana. Miana. Hello. Hi, my apologies. Um, but mm -hmm. first of all, thank you, Eric, for your question. I definitely believe that first and foremost, just getting the information to parents is crucial. Um, we cannot expect parents to teach their children and prepare their children for something that they themselves do not understand. They themselves um, may actually be struggling with. There are a lot of children who are ex who are showing signs of depression, signs of anxiety, signs of very serious mental illnesses, and parents are not acknowledging it because they are also showing the same signs. So definitely just getting the information out there. Also, making mental health less of a stigmatized topic. Um, discussing with your children from a young age, emotional intelligence, social cues, understanding 
different symptoms, understanding um, how your mind works definitely can kind of prepare them to understand as they get older, as they reach 10, 11, and 13 years old, what different mental illnesses may look like. Um, a lot of mental illnesses, a lot of mental health disorders tend to show signs before someone is the age of 14. So it's definitely important to get information out there and also to allow resources that are accessible. There are a lot of resources out there available for mental health, for youth mental health, but just because they're available does not necessarily mean they are accessible. Uh, so I definitely think just allowing resources to be accessible to teens who don't necessarily have access to the internet every day, don't necessarily have access to certain things that others have, getting in their face, getting into social media, getting into a lot of things that teens are into on a daily basis and implementing it with mental health will allow them to not only destigmatize the concept of mental health, but definitely push them to have those conversations with themselves, with them, their parents, and with their friends, prayerfully pushing the conversation amongst the community as a whole. Mm -hmm. And you say that resources are available, but sometimes it's hard to access them. So, you know, if, if a parent, if an adult in a child's family also doesn't know how to access or know how to talk about this, Miana, where where do they go? Um, I would definitely suggest starting small. I always suggest to people um, to just speak up. Number one, you never know who is able to help you if you don't say anything. There, you can start small by the next time you go to a doctor's appointment, even if it's for a basic checkup, just mentioning, hey, what are some of the symptoms of depression? Or, hey, I've been feeling like this lately, and see if they have resources available. I also definitely suggest reaching out to your state behavioral health department and see what resources they have located specifically in your community. Also, definitely just with the beauty, along with the pain of social media, you are able to go on social media nowadays and type in um, Maryland mental health resources or just kind of Google and look on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram for those mental health resources that are in your area. Aside from that, I definitely suggest just looking online, looking into Psychology Today, uh, thementalelephant.com, websites that are able to provide you with more in-home, closer, whether it's telehealth, whether it's um, social work or things that are definitely available and accessible within your space versus places and things that are more so like hotlines and generic things that are not necessarily dedicated specifically to certain causes for certain families. Mm -hmm. Great. And Miana, last question to you. Uh, the pandemic has been very difficult on young people. How have you seen people's mental health change and how, how do they get past this difficult time? Um, well, that is an amazing question, and I definitely will relate back to what Ms. Anna said and to what was spoken earlier in the podcast by both of our amazing senators. This is a complex issue. Um, this is a complex issue that does not have a Band-Aid out of the box that we can put on and make things a lot better. Um, I definitely think the pandemic paired with a lot of the racial trauma that we have seen throughout social media over the past two to three years, paired with an increase in school shootings, an increase in violence, an increase in prices, um, the lack of ability to be able to get basic things has been 
painful for a lot of people. It's been painful for a lot of teenagers, for a lot of kids to get through. And I've noticed a lot of changes in not only energy levels, but just solely in pessimism or being a pessimist and not necessarily being able to look at the brighter things anymore, not necessarily being able to understand or move past the trauma dump that we as young people in America at this point experience almost on a daily basis. It's difficult to get on social media and not see something traumatic or something painful or something that vicariously we are living through. Um, So I definitely think over the past two to three years, the mental health conversation has increased the talk of mental health the push for mental health has increased dramatically over the past couple of years but the actual mental health of our country in my opinion especially when it comes to youth has declined rapidly due to being isolated due to constant trauma dumps from social media due to constant agony constant pain that we are seeing our friends our peers and our communities go through um so definitely battling that is something internally, um, definitely having to learn how to cope with a lot of the different issues and a lot of different problems in the world. But a very large portion of those issues can be handled externally. A very large portion of those issues can be handled through Congress, through macro work, through a lot of pushing and a lot of fighting and a lot of people honestly stepping back from the money, stepping back from the power, stepping back from a hiatus that they would like and focusing on our children, focusing on our country, focusing on things that are morally important rather than things that are financially important. Mm, Really profound. Increased awareness, but also increased need at this time. Miana, Anna, thank you so much for your time today on this very important conversation. And thank you for the work you both do. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.